Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. We are continuing our consideration of Luke chapter 12. Again, as a reminder, Jesus' public ministry has, uh, cons- has consisted so far in his uh, ministry in the region of Galilee in the north. And in chapter 9, we saw this transition in the Gospel of Luke where he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So we're now in this extended section of Luke's Gospel where Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. And the next big stage in his public ministry will be when he enters Jerusalem to do what he came to this earth to do, to suffer, to die, and ultimately to rise from the dead. So Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34, please pay careful attention for this is the word of our God. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, we are creatures who have both a body and a soul. There is a a deep integration, a close relationship between these two components of our personhood. So much so that basically everything that we do in this life has both a physical bodily aspect and a spiritual soulish aspect. Such is the case oftentimes with anxiety. Anxiety, yes, is a spiritual issue, but it also can be a physical issue and has effects upon our physical bodies. And Jesus in this passage is addressing the spiritual side or spiritual component of our anxiety and and worry in this life. Now there are many good prescriptions for 
anxiety that has to do with our physical bodies. Things as simple as as getting more sleep, eating a better diet, getting exercise, starting to understand the patterns of your own thought, and even even at times medication. But Jesus here is not, not addressing our physical bodies. He's addressing the spiritual side, the spiritual component of our worry and anxiety in this life. One of the reasons I believe this is the case is About halfway through this passage, Jesus addresses his disciples and says, Oh, you of little faith. It's as if Jesus is saying that the necessary precondition to be able to hear, take to heart, and put into practice the prescriptions, the teaching that he is laying out for us, is faith. Faith is necessary. Faith is required to be able to hear and actually take to heart these words. Many of the common grace uh, solutions that I previously mentioned are beneficial and good for believer or unbeliever, whether you have faith or don't have faith. But Jesus is saying that faith is absolutely necessary for these words to be effective in our lives. Moreover, notice the command, uh, the tone of this command, do not be anxious. Now, is this command to not be anxious, is it, is it more like these woes which we have recently heard Jesus pronounce upon the Pharisees for their hypocrisy? Or is it more like Jesus' command to Jairus a few uh, chapters ago where he says, do not weep after he resurrects his uh, previously dead daughter? Well, it's more like the latter than the former. Jesus here is not so much trying to lay down the heavy hammer of the law when he says, do not be anxious. He's seeking to comfort and encourage his people. Now, when we come across commands in the New Testament, most of the time, those commands are in the imperative mood in the Greek language. Imperatives are one of the most common ways that the Greeks would would express commands. And this statement, this command in in this passage of do not be anxious is also in the imperative mood. But this imperative mood, while it most of the time expresses a, a direct command, it also can express a desire, a wish, or an entreaty. Thus Jesus, in saying do not be anxious, may be expressing his desire that his disciples, and by extension you this evening, may not have hearts or souls that are excessively weighed down with anxiety and and worry. And therefore, to that end, Jesus seeks to remind us of four things, four things about who we are in Christ, four things about our identity as Christians in this present evil age. And these four things are things that are very easy for us to forget in moments of excessive anxiety and worry, and therefore are very helpful reminders for us as we live in this fallen world. So first, Jesus reminds us that in this age we are pilgrims, that we are pilgrims in this age. If you look with me in your Bibles at verse 23, Jesus says, 
For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now what anxiety does is it tells us that the here and now is all that there is. Striving after the fulfillment of temporal needs and wants is, is really all that there is. Anxiety wants to tell us that we are home now and we're not pilgrims. This is all that there is. Eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. But Jesus reminds us, Jesus reminds us that there is indeed a lot more to our existence in the here and now. In fact, the most important part of history and our existence as everlasting beings, it's important to know every, every human being is an, not an eternal being because we all have beginnings, but we are everlasting beings. We all will be resurrected on the last day, whether to damnation or, or, or eternal life. And so there, therefore the most important part of our existence is yet to come, at the second coming of Christ. We are pilgrims. That's what Jesus is expressing here when he says life is more. More than the, merely the temporal needs, desires, and wants that you see around you. And, and now Jesus, in the original context, he's speaking to individuals who live in a subsistence economy and therefore clothing and, and daily bread was actually a real worry. Having enough to eat that day for your family, having clothes to put on the backs of your children it was a legitimate worry and I would imagine for most of us our needs are a bit more sophisticated than literal daily bread or or clothing on our backs but nonetheless we too can get wrapped up in the here and now and merely seeking to fulfill the the immediate needs and desires of our life and we forget this fundamental identity that we're pilgrims Imagine those times when you are traveling. Maybe you're on vacation or you are traveling for work. You're away from home. Oftentimes in those, in those moments, you, you may enjoy yourself, but you always are thinking and, and, and remembering that, that you're not home. It might be that you miss your family. It might be that you miss your bed. And all of those little things are, are reminders that this is not your life. This is not your home. And what the trials, the sufferings, the hardships, even the anxieties of this life, what they do, uh, they're like little pinches that remind us, wake us up to this reality that, we'll, that we're, we're pilgrims. This world is not as it should be. This world is fallen. It's filled with suffering and, and turmoil. And we are those who are destined for that new Jerusalem. So very simply, Jesus is reminding us in the outset that we're pilgrims. That we're pilgrims, en route to our heavenly homeland. It's important to remember because in times of anxiety, we forget this. We forget this. Well, Jesus also reminds us that we are image bearers. Image bearers of God himself. In verse 24, if you look with me in, in your Bibles, uh, verse 24 says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Jesus is employing a rhetorical technique that he uses often in his teachings in the Gospels. He, 
He's employing this argument of the lesser to the greater. He's pointing to this this common bird that they would have encountered probably on a daily basis, the raven. And this is a pretty striking example in the original, in light of the original context. Ravens were, uh, as Jesus says here, they were not those who, who, who sowed nor reaped. They, they didn't really toil much for their food. Furthermore, they didn't store up any food for the winter for the future. They just ate what they needed in the moment. When we think about this in light of Proverbs, in Proverbs, the sage tells us to consider both the sluggard and the ant. We are to consider the sluggard as an example of foolish living, of not being wise and prudential and thinking about the future. And we are to consider the ant as being an example of wise living, as, as a creature who does plan and store up for the future. And so the raven, according to Proverbs, is a fool. The opposite of wise living. And so Jesus here is not commending the example of the raven. Jesus is not saying, be like the raven. But it's extraordinary that Jesus says that even like a, a bird like, the ra- like, like a raven, God provides for. God provides for a creature that really acts more like the sluggard than the ant. Furthermore, the raven, in light of a Jewish context, was, as according to one commentator, considered a, a rapacious, unclean bird. They were deemed unclean. The Jews did not want to uh, be, with, uh, be in contact with, with that which is unclean. And so Jesus is, is pointing to this raven, which if you think of the bird hierarchy in the first century, would have been on the very bottom of the hierarchy. And yet God says even the raven is provided for by God himself. If that is the case, how much more so will God provide for an image bearer like you and like me? It's a lesser to the greater argument. Well, Jesus continues this line of argumentation in, in verse 27 as he points to the lilies of the field. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor span, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now here Jesus does the opposite. He employs an argument from the greater to the lesser. He points to these, these lilies, who, uh, which would have been adorned beautifully. And he says these lilies, which... Do not anxiously think about their adornments, their appearance, obviously as their inanimate uh, be, um, plants. Yet, these lilies surpass the beauty of Solomon and all of his kingdom. Now, for a Jew hearing this, this would have been extraordinary. If you read chapters like 1 Kings 10 or 2 Chronicles 9, where the Queen of Sheba had heard reports about the kingdom of Solomon, the, the, the beauty, the wonder of Solomon and his court, the wisdom that he had. And, and the Queen of Sheba came to see what this was all about, and she was astounded. And yet Jesus says the lilies, these simple lilies, put Solomon to shame. And so if God can clothe, adorn these lilies beautifully, can he not clothe you? An image bear? 
Jesus makes the same argument, but now he turns in verse 28 to the common field grass. And this, this field grass would have been used to fuel ordinary stoves or, or ovens in that day. And throughout scripture, we see that grass is used as the quintessential picture of that which is transitory. For instance, ordinarily, after I read the scripture passage, each Lord's Day, I'll quote from Isaiah, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Grass is that picture of that which is transitory. And so Jesus is pointing to one of the most transitory features of creation and saying even the common field grass is not overlooked by God's providence and care. Again, if that is the case, how much more so will he provide for his image bearers? God promises that as, as many days that he has ordained that you will walk this earth, he will provide for your needs. Now, these arguments that Jesus is putting forth might seem obvious to us. Yeah, of course, if God provides for the lilies and the ravens and, and the common field grass, of course, he'll, he'll provide for, for his image bearers. It's very important to, to understand why Jesus is, is using this, uh, this rhetorical device and employing uh, this argument in the context of anxiety. The reason is, is because in times of anxiety, our minds get fixated on one or two things that is, that's concerning us. And we really forget about everything else that's going on in our life. We get that tunnel vision focus upon that one thing that's causing us excessive worry and anxiety. And so Jesus is wanting us to take a step back, to be mindful, to be aware, to be present in the moment to everything else in our lives that testify to the very opposite thing that the anxiety is testifying to. That God is in control. That I am under the care and watch of an almighty God and faithful Father. I was reading an article this week by a certain philosopher and he employed uh, two terms, not in the context of this passage or anxiety, but uh, to speak to another topic, but I think these terms are, are helpful when applied to this passage. The, these terms that he used were attend and transcend. So first Jesus is saying we are to attend to that which is before us. These ordinary aspects of God's general revelation. Here in western Washington, we are confronted with the beauty of God's creation on a daily basis. And therefore we are to attend, to take note of this book of, of general revelation. But as we attend, we are to transcend. That is to say, we are to lift our minds to the creator and sustainer of these ordinary features of this world. We are to attend and to transcend. Uh, philosopher Charles Taylor, he, he's written a lot about the, the nature of the secular world or the secular age and what and what that means. And one of the descriptors that he uses to describe the secular age is a disenchanted, is that those in the secular age view this world as a disenchanted world. That is to say, people look out upon this natural creation, that's all they see. 
They might wonder at the beauty at this natural creation, but their minds are not lifted up to a greater being, a greater power, a greater beauty beyond this physical world. They don't transcend. All they do is attend. You compare this view of, of the world to those, let's say, in the 16th century. Those in the 16th century, especially in the West, they had a very enchanted view of the world. They looked around themselves and everything testified to a personal God who not only created all things, but was actively sustaining all of life. And sometimes, because we, we live in a secular world, we, we can kind of lose that enchanted view of God's book of general revelation. Okay? God continues to sustain this creation. Scripture tells us that God not only created, but also sustains this creation by the word of his power. His word is the means. Creation and sustenance. Now think about how words are used in our ordinary life. Words are personal. In fact, that's what separates us from the animal world. We can actually relate to one another in, in, with intelligible speech. It's personal. And so when we look around us at creation, that which is created and sustained by the personal word of God, this creation reflects a personal God. And this personal God has promised to care for his image bearers. And so in moments of anxiety, in moments of worry, remember, remember this important part of your identity, that you are an image bearer of God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. Well, Jesus also calls us to remember that we are children of God. That we are children of God. In verse 25, he says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What Jesus is saying is that we are most in control with those things that are, that are associated with us. We're most in control of our own life, our own decisions. And the farther we get out from ourselves, the less control we have. We have less control over the decisions and outcome of, of life of other people. We have less control over other institutions, over society, over the economy, and so on and so forth. The farther we get out from ourselves, the less control we have. And so Jesus is saying, if you can't even control the span of your own life, how do you think you're going to control all these other things which are removed from you? His point is that anxiety and worry is from a, you know, a logical, a rational point of view is, is quite illogical and irrational. It doesn't help the situation. It can't add to your lifespan. Nor can it do anything else in your life that's farther removed from your own body and your own decisions. Anxiety is pointless. Jesus is wanting to tell us that we don't have control over anything in our life, ultimately. However, this recognition is not meant to perpetuate that cycle of excessive worry and anxiety. Rather, it is meant to cause us to cast ourselves upon our Father, our Heavenly Father. In fact, in verse 30, Jesus specifically refers to God as our Father. In comparison to the nations who live as if they don't have a Heavenly Father, 
we have a Father who knows what we need. If you think of uh, children in this, in, this, in this life, they are very dependent upon their parents, especially young children, infants. They're completely dependent upon their parents. And thus Jesus is, is wanting us to embrace that identity. We're children of God, and thus we are completely dependent upon our Heavenly Father. This may be why Jesus oftentimes points to young children, even infants, as model exemplars for kingdom life. Because they exemplify this feature, this important feature of dependence. What anxiety wants to tell us is that we are independent. That we are our own sovereign selves and we have the weight of our world, the weight of the world upon our shoulders. Of course that's going to drive us to excessive worry and anxiety. If you think about all the possible things that could go wrong in your life at any moment, it's amazing that more people aren't driven to this kind of despair and anxiety. But yet Jesus reminds us that we have a Heavenly Father that we can throw ourselves upon. That we are children of God. Well, lastly, Jesus reminds us that we are citizens of the kingdom. That we are citizens of the kingdom. In verses 29 through 34, Jesus reaches the climax of this passage and in a very helpful way summarizes some of the main conclusions of this passage. You'll see that Jesus is contrasting these various kinds of seeking. He tells his disciples, don't seek after temporal needs in this life. Don't seek after food or clothing. But rather, seek his kingdom. Seek the kingdom of God. Now is Jesus contrasting these two types of seeking in an either-or relationship? Or... A hierarchical relationship. Well, I believe, I, I don't think that Jesus is saying we have to pick. As if to say we either choose to seek our temporal needs and reject the kingdom of God, or we choose the kingdom of God and, and we somehow reject temporal needs and live some, some sort of monastic life. Rather, I think what Jesus is saying is he's teaching us what our priority should be. He's teaching us what the proper hierarchy of our hearts should be that first and foremost we are to be those who seek the kingdom. The kingdom is to be our priority and then secondarily, secondarily we are to seek after our temporal needs and wants. Now what is the kingdom? The kingdom is a topic that Jesus repeatedly brings up. It's a, king, uh, it's a topic that we often use but it's most of the time less clear uh, uh, it's less clear what Jesus means and what we mean by this, this idea of the kingdom of God. Well, put simply, the kingdom of God is the new creation. The new creation. Jesus came in his earthly ministry to inaugurate this new creation. And in this age, the new creation is, is found in, in our own salvation. As the Spirit of God regenerates our hearts. As we experience justification and the glorious life of sanctification uh, through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. But the second coming of Christ 
this new creation will be consummated. When Jesus brings forth the new heavens and the new earth and we are granted our resurrected bodies. That's what the kingdom of God is. And Jesus, in his, in his first coming, inaugurates, brings about this kingdom which will come to completion at his second coming. Well, as I alluded to before, Jesus says then that we are to seek this kingdom. That's our ultimate priority. We are to seek this kingdom. But then in the very next verse, he goes on and tells us that we are to fear not because it is the good pleasure of God to bestow this kingdom upon us. So which one is it? Do we seek it or is it given to us? Well, we indeed become citizens of this kingdom by the good pleasure of God. Now, the way you could render that is the will of God. That is how we become inheritors of this kingdom. God the Father chose to set his love upon you before the foundation of the earth. It's an amazing reality to think about. Before the foundation of the earth, God the Father chose personally to set his love upon you. God the Son, before the foundation of the world, chose to and decide and committed to come to this earth to live, suffer, and die for you. Because of your sinful nature, because of the actual sins that you have committed, we'll continue to uh, commit. And God the Holy Spirit pledged to come and inhabit your hearts, to be the down payment of this kingdom citizenship. Thus, every Lord's Day, when we hear this declaration of pardon, this is God bestowing his kingdom upon his people. And in response to this gracious, gracious bestowal, we are called to seek his kingdom by embracing Christ through faith. We seek his kingdom through faith. Well, Jesus goes on to make this connection then between the kingdom our treasure and our hearts. The kingdom, our treasure, and our hearts. Now it's easy for us to think of our actions, especially those actions which proceed from our anxiety or are tied to our anxiety. It's easy for us to blame those actions upon our circumstance. As if, I wouldn't be acting this way if my circumstances were different. But Jesus says that we actually have it backwards. Those actions proceed from the heart, and the circumstances are, are merely the trigger which produce our hearts to react that way. The issue is with the heart. Furthermore, our hearts naturally and intuitively treasure things. This is what they do. They, they're treasuring hearts. And our actions then, which proceed from our heart, are always in pursuit of a treasure. And everything that we treasure in this life is inherently insecure and unstable. That's just the reality of life in a fallen world. Everything that we treasure in this life is inherently insecure and unstable. Therefore, the reason why we're anxious is because of this reality. We recognize the insecurity of these treasures, the insecurity of the future, and therefore we grow anxious. 
However, when the kingdom of God is our ultimate treasure, is indeed our highest priority, the highest priority of our hearts, what tends to happen is we begin to take on a disposition of calm, of peace, of, e- of even rest, even when life begins to rear its ugly head. Because we know that this kingdom is secure. Our greatest treasure cannot be taken away. And therefore we are able to have not a, not a stoic rest, but a rest in the reality that this kingdom is ours. Secured by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts. It also has a way, when, when, our, when this kingdom is our ultimate treasure, it has a way of putting our, uh, the anxieties over our temporal life in, a, in their proper perspective. Now, not to say that we're still going to have anxieties in this life. In fact, that in some ways is a good thing. As I mentioned before, our desires and anxiety are really two sides of the same coin. You can't really love people, have convictions in this life without having anxiety to some degree. The Apostle Paul speaks on multiple occasions of having anxiety, anxiety over the churches, burden, burden over the many people uh, to whom he's ministering. However, when the kingdom is our ultimate treasure, those anxieties are put in their proper context. We're able to view those anxieties with the proper lens and perspective. In verse 33, Jesus says that when our hearts are rightly ordered in this fashion, when the kingdom of God is indeed our ultimate treasure, our grip upon the things of this world, our earthly possessions begin to loosen. You'll see that he says that we then are freed up to be able to sell our possessions and and give to the needy. Now we are called to be engaged in this world. We are not called to retreat to a Christian ghetto of sorts. We are to engage with our unbelieving neighbors, engage with with a pagan Society, as the Israelites did in, in Jeremiah 29, as they were to seek the welfare of Babylon, as the New Covenant Church does in the pages of the New Testament. We are to engage in this present evil age. However, what Jesus is saying, we are to engage with a pilgrim mindset. Engage in such a way that we realize this is not our ultimate home. That we are destined for that new Jerusalem, just as the exiles were to remember that their true home was in Jerusalem. And that is where they were to return. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks to this nature of engagement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29-31, Paul says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now Paul is not saying that those who are married or those who have secular vocations and callings should turn their back upon those legitimate responsibilities. Now what he's saying is that we have to realize that we are pilgrims. And these, these callings that we have and that are tied to this present evil age, this present creation, will pass away. And that our ultimate identity and citizenship resides in the new creation. 
And that is where our heart is to ultimately rest. Beloved in the Lord, when Jesus says at the the beginning of this passage, do not be anxious. He is desiring that your hearts would not be weighed down with excessive anxiety or worry. And therefore, to that end, he is reminding us of who we are in him. That we are those who are pilgrims, image bearers, children, and citizens of the kingdom of God. So let us pray. Lord, we give thanks for your word, your word which uh, so often speaks to us in the midst of our own turmoil, anxiety, ruminations, and even worry, and reminds us of truths that oftentimes we already know, but so easily we can forget. And uh, we pray that this week, as we enter into our, our ordinary vocation,